Well, if you brought a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I would invite you to the first installment of the summer series. We're titling The Cliffhangers of Christ. And turn to John chapter 3, undoubtedly the most familiar passage in all of the Bible. After many months of languishing in a hospice care center, Alan Ober finally has closure. Or do we finally have closure? Anyway, there's closure. She's in heaven, right? We know that because the Bible says to be absent from the body, which she is now, is to be present with the Lord. We love closure. In fact, we almost demand it, do we not? We even have this expression that when some, we don't get closure, we, we talk about being left hanging, so to speak. A number of the encounters that Jesus had with individuals in the gospel accounts, you have clear closure. The woman at the well, through all of that dialogue, goes out and goes into the city and tells everyone about the Messiah. The same is true of the demon-possessed man, the demon of uh, the Gadarene demoniac, who is in his right mind, and then desires to go with Jesus. But Jesus tells him to go, and go into the towns, and go to your family, and to your friends, and tell them what God has done, the great mercy he's had on you, and this is what he does. The thief on the cross gets closure. Today, you will what? Be with me in paradise. Even the rich young ruler got closure. Even if it was the wrong kind of closure. He made a decision, even if it was the wrong kind of decision, when he turned away, having been challenged by Jesus, to completely surrender to his lordship. Some time ago, it struck me the number of times in the narratives and the stories in the gospel where where Jesus purposely does not bring closure to the story, or the inspired Uh, The writer, who's led by the Holy Spirit, doesn't bring us closure. In fact, in some instances, we're sort of left wondering, well, what happened then? It's almost like coming to the end of a book and expecting another chapter, and it's just not there. Like the prodigal son, or the prodigal sons. That's a famous one. And Tim Keller does a great job in his book, The Prodigal God, of bringing this out. Whereas at the end of the story, you have the prodigal, which means wasteful, the younger son, who goes off and he gets his his share of the inheritance, one-third of the inheritance. He wastes it in sinful living. He finally comes to the end of himself in a pigsty, comes back to his father and says, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm not not worthy to be called your servant or, you know, your son. Make me like one of your servants. But you know the story, the the father is so overwhelmed with joy that he not only embraces his son, brings him back into the family, invites him to the table, slaughters the fatted calf, and has a great party, but the elder son is not happy with it. In fact, he's not just not happy, he's downright spitting nails over the whole deal. Confronts his dad, reminds his dad what a worthless son this other son has been, what a great son he's been, of course. And then refuses to go into the party. The father 
makes this appeal, son, you know, all that I have is yours, which was literally true, if you know the story. He would have been the elder son, would have gotten two-thirds of the inheritance, and now it's all his. Because the other one got his and wasted it all. He said, everything I have is yours. It's all yours. Isn't it right? Your son, your brother was dead. He's now alive. He's back. Isn't it right that we do this? And, And we all are in our minds saying, yes, 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 it's right. But that's where the story ends. It just ends. And we don't know what that elder brother did. Why does God do this? Is he just teasing us? Is he playing with us? I don't think so. Remember, all Scripture is profitable, right? That means God wants all Scripture to be useful in my life and in yours. And so I think the Holy Spirit intended for you and I in these cliffhangers of Christ to insert ourselves into the story, insert yourself into the story. What would you have done if you were the elder brother, for instance? What would you have done if you were, say, Nicodemus? John chapter 3, this is the ver- I preached my very first sermon out of this passage of Scripture. The first sermon that I prepared, preached, pleaded, poured my heart out, and ended up in a pool of sweat over was this passage. It was a vacation Bible school program ender at my brother's church. And I preached, and I sat down in a pool of sweat next to my brother. He put his arm around me and affirmed me. And I, I looked at him, I said, man, how long did I go? He said, 13 minutes. I've since learned how to go a little longer than that. And while this might be a familiar passage to many of us, perhaps not all of us, did it ever occur to you that we're not told what the main character did with the information that was given to him? In fact, look with me at the, look with me at the passage, John chapter 3. We'll look at the first just 12 verses of Scripture. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, said, he, he said, Rabbi, we know that you, you're a teacher, come from God. No one can do these signs unless God is, is with him. Jesus answered, truly, truly, verily, verily, most assuredly, amen, amen. I say to you, unless One is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't be surprised that I say to you, you must Be born again. The wind blows where it wills or where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? 
Jesus answered him, are you the teacher in Israel? And yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, we bear witness of what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. The plural probably referring to him and John the Baptist. If we've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, we, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? That's where we'll stop. Because we never hear from Nicodemus again. That phrase in verse 9, how can these things be? Is the last word from Nicodemus in the narrative. He's still in the fog, still trying to piece things together. Just like some of you. You're still sort of in a fog. You're still trying to piece some of this together, and, it, and, and you're intrigued by it. You're drawn to it, but you haven't quite figured it out yet. And are we to think that this is where it all ended? Are we to think Jesus said, figure it out? I think that this man left hanging in this account was left hanging so that you and I would insert ourselves into this account. And when it all starts to make sense, when it all starts to click in your heart and mind, what do you do with it when you're left on that cliffhanger? The new birth is arguably one of the most important subjects in all of the Bible, especially as it pertains to you and I, because it's our greatest need. Without it, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Peter reaffirms this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be, because of his abundant mercy, born again by the, Spirit, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then later on, in the very same chapter, who caused us to be born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable by the living and abiding word of God. And verse 7, you must be what? You must be born again. And while this might be a familiar passage and a familiar concept, it is also one of the most misunderstood and satanically corrupted truths found anywhere in the Bible. Of course, of course it is. Of course it is. Some of you listening right now have been duped into thinking that that prayer that you prayed with your dad or mom or your camp counselor or the TV preacher saved you from your sins. You prayed, you felt good about it, but no change, no change ever took, pla- took place in your heart. No heart change, no life change, no praise and gratitude to God, no willingness to publicly acknowledge your faith in Jesus and express it publicly. None of that. And yet you think that you're saved because of that act of a prayer. On the other hand, some of you have been raised in genuine Christian homes. You heard Christian truth. You sang Christian songs. You hung out with Christian friends. You led a Christian life even. There's only one problem. You're not a Christian. You might be in that group, and I have run into these people repeatedly. As recently as a 
little over a week ago. I have always been a Christian. Let me tell you something. This passage of Scripture absolutely flies in the face of that statement. Mark it down. No one, no one has always been a Christian. Do you understand that? No one has always been a Christian. That is not even possible. When were you born? I don't know. I've always been born. That makes no sense. And this isn't the only passage. There are a myriad of passages that take us to the crux of the moment, the crisis moment. Jesus said, unless you are converted and become like a child, you won't enter the kingdom of God, Matthew 18. Unless you repent, you will not see the kingdom of God, Luke chapter 13. It isn't going to happen. As many as received him, that means to take in. To them, God gave the exousia, the power, the authority to become the sons or the the little born ones of God. That's what the word children means, by the way. Interesting. Little born ones of God. Technon. So you must be converted. You must be born again. And some of you have been a part of this church all of your lives, and you're not born again. That's a strong statement. But I'm telling you, I'm going to have to stand before this living God someday and give an account for being a pastor. And I do not want the living God to say, Why didn't you tell them? They were deceiving themselves. What does it mean to be born again? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. That might help. It doesn't mean accepting the truth about Jesus. The Apostle Paul didn't rejoice because he knew about Jesus. He rejoiced because he knew him, right? I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to be able to enter into fellowship with his suffering. I want to be conformed into his death. The writer of Hebrews makes it very clear. He says, if we sin deliberately having received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin, but a fearful and certain fiery judgment. Have you ever read that? It's not just knowing about Jesus. Nicodemus, the man in our story, is, a, is the teacher of Israel, verse 10. Yet he wasn't saved. He had a lot of knowledge, just like a lot of you. And some of you who have knowledge do not know Jesus. It's not being raised to believe, as many of us have been. Myself, not included. Again, John chapter 1 says, it's not by blood, nor by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. That's where salvation comes. It's not because you were born into it. It's not because you strove for it. And it's not because your parents desired you to be saved in as much as they did. 
But it's of God, John 1.13. It's of God. That's the reason why the phrase born again, and if you have some of the older translations, it literally, it'll say born from above, I think is one of the old, one, I can't remember what translate, it'll actually say born from above, because that's literally what the phrase means, to be born from above, which identifies the origin of our salvation. We must be born again, and to be born again means we're born from above. I had somebody say the other day, they wrote me a vicious letter saying, well, you don't really preach the gospel because, you know, you're just saying, you know, it's, there's, you're, you're, you're taking the, my will out of this whole thing, and I don't get a chance to make the decision. God's doing everything. And I responded to this person, I'm not saying your will isn't involved. I'm not saying your will doesn't get activated. I'm not saying you don't say, yes, I want to be saved. Save me, Lord. I'm just saying it doesn't start with you. It starts with God. And you better get that into your head. It didn't start with you. It started with God. And so it's not simply being raised to believe. And it doesn't mean getting baptized. There's no baptism in this passage of Scripture. Being born of water and of spirit has nothing to do with baptism. The whole thing is about the natural birth process versus spiritual. It's very clear. It's very commonsensical. And you have one verse of Scripture to slay baptism. You don't need 15 of them. You don't even need Ephesians 2, 8, 9, as great a verse as that is. But the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross be made of no effect. What else do you need? Christ didn't send me to baptize, though he did baptize. He didn't send me to baptize, but Allah, strong adversative, to preach the gospel. There's the clear demarcation between the outward showing of one's salvation and the inward reality of what takes place when you place your faith in Jesus. It's not baptism. So quit trusting it. It's not getting or being deeply moved by a message. Inasmuch as there's no question about it, God enters into our will, he enters into our emotions, we are broken, we are sorrowful, we are repentant, all that's a part of it, but simply being moved isn't going to save you. Nicodemus was moved, was he not? The rich young ruler was moved. The Bible says in one of the accounts, he comes kneeling before Jesus, but he walks away, and nothing ever changed. Just like some of you. You've been moved, you've prayed prayers, you've been baptized, and nothing has ever changed. Let me tell you something, you're not saved. You're not converted. And stop pretending that you are, because you're not. You say, well, look, I'm, 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 I'm 65 years, I don't care how old you are. You must be born again. You must be born again. That's what the scripture says. And so the last, it's not praying a prayer. I was in the home of a couple, my wife and I, oh, a little over a month ago, and, and uh, just a sweet couple, and uh, through a series of circumstances, we got to know them, we were talking, I wanted to hear their stories. Let me tell me your story. And the young man who's here this morning, I won't call him out, he was very sincere, very open. And he told me his story. Part of that story had to do with his wife-to-be, whose uncle was 
a zealous evangelist. Knowing that he was not a Christian, and she was, he sought out to make them an equal yoke. Amen? So he took them to this quiet, serene place called McDonald's and began to fervently witness to him. Said, you're an unequal yoke, and if you're going to be a couple together, you need to be saved. Jesus died for your sins and he rose again. Do you believe this? Doesn't that make sense? You know, what's he going to say? Yeah, that makes sense. Well, then pray this prayer with me. So he prayed the prayer. He wasn't even sure what he was doing, but he prayed. Oh, and there was great celebration at McDonald's. The uncle and the family and the tears are flowing. Everybody was happy. Everybody except the young man who's in this room. He didn't even know what happened. But he prayed prayer. You know what? When I asked him a month ago what happened, he never even shared that with me. His wife shared it with me. You know why he didn't share that with me? Because it didn't mean anything to him. Because nothing happened to him then. And he knew it. In his heart of hearts. He knew it. So now, as I am laying the truth of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ at his feet, it's very evident that it's starting to mean something to him. And now I have a dilemma. Do I have him pray the prayer? I said, great talking to you, and we left. You want to know what happened? Pay attention, I'll tell you at the end of the sermon. So here you have, in this passage of Scripture, a genuine seeker of God. There's a man of the Pharisees. So he's not just anybody. He's a Pharisee. Josephus tells us there were 6,000 of these guys. Incredibly religious, incredibly popular amongst the common folk, the Pharisees. The word that we don't have any record of them in the Old Testament. Apparently they cropped up in the intertestamental time during those 400 years of silence, when there wasn't, uh, you know, there just there wasn't any prophet speaking out. The Pharisees cropped up. The word means to separate, literally to separate from sin. That's the idea. They were, they were the separatists of the day. They were very conservative. They were Old Testament oriented. They were big on the do's and don'ts. They were understood as holy men, known for fasting, known for prayers, known for piety, known for their love of the praise of men. But they believed in a lot of things you and I believe. They believed in angels and demons. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels and demons. They believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe that. They believed that if you were good and you, and you obeyed the law, that when you died after a period of time in Hades, you'd be raised to life and you'd be given rewards based on you know, how you did in this life. Popular among the common folk, which is the reason why they were so insanely jealous of Jesus. Because if you read in the Gospels, the common people heard him gladly. You ever read that? That is of Jesus. And it was the Pharisees that were the, the heroes of the commoners. So here is Nicodemus. He's not just a Pharisee, he's a ruler of the Jews. Undoubtedly a member of the Sanhedrin. A council of 71. So there's 6,000 Pharisees, but there's 71 of the elite, and he's one of them. He's in the Sanhedrin, these sages that would be the final authority in Jewish law. 
In other words, he's not just any Pharisee. He's well-known. He's well-respected. And this might be a subtle deception that you have brought, that you yourself have bought into. You might have spiritual prominence in your life. You know your Bible. You attribute its applied principles to your good marriage or your good family or your good standing or your good business. Maybe you've been a deacon or, or even more esteemed, a teacher. I'm telling you, Nicodemus was all of these things. Verse 10, Jesus says, aren't you the, the article is there, the teacher in Israel? In other words, he is, his prominence is incredible. He's a hugely respectable individual. He had all of that, and he didn't have Jesus, just like some of you. And he comes to Jesus by night. We could speculate forever what he, why he did that, but probably the most commonsensical thing is that he just, he was probably a celebrity. Nicodemus probably didn't go anywhere without a lot of people noticing him. So coming to Jesus at night would have avoided all of that. Plus, I'm sure he was wondering, eh, you know, I'm not so sure myself. And my buddies don't like him, so maybe I can just have a conversation with him. But he's very sincere, is he not? So the night provides good cover. And he says, you know, we know, and that's an interesting little word. That means it's the word oida. It's the word which, uh, to know by observation. That's the idea. We know that you're a teacher come from God. So the idea here is that we have, I've been watching you, Jesus, and there's no way you can't, there's no way you're not from God doing that. So he's, he's rightly interpreting Jesus as being from God. Watching. And the Pharisees were good watchers, were they not? So now he's coming, he's a genuine seeker, and now we have some, but we have Jesus who, who seeks deeper. He's a deeper seeker. And it's very abrupt. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, born from above, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this is startling to Nicodemus. And Jesus is the one who truly seeks, right? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. We think we seek after God. It's really God seeking after us. He just puts that desire in us to seek him, right? And so... He comes and he says, you know, we know you're a teacher. Nobody can do this, Nicodemus says. Jesus says, you must be born again. You need a new birth. One writer put, to tell an Orthodox Jew he needed to be born into a different family was an affront to his lineage. In fact, they had a saying, the Pharisees had the saying, quote, a proselyte who embraces Judaism is like a newborn child, unquote. So, in Nicodemus's mind, I'm not the one who needs to be a baby again. Other people do that come into Judaism, and Jesus is knocking him off his high horse. And he's saying, no, you need a new birth. You need, to, you need a new family. The one you got isn't enough. Jesus tells him he needs to be born all over again, just like you, just like me. It's not being raised, it's not being trained, it's not being nurtured, it's not being processed, it's being born. It speaks of a time, this speaks of a moment. Just as you were born at a point in time. And by the way, have you ever noticed that nobody ever brags about their birth? 
They brag about a lot of things, braggarts do, but they don't brag about the, have you, well, you know, it was a real struggle for me to get out of there. <laughs> yeah, you know, the cord was wrapped around my neck and if it wasn't me pulling it off, I would have died in there. Nobody talks like that. Why? Because you know there's no pride in your birth. You didn't do anything. You just came out. Right? Right? So when you talk about being born, you take out the nurturing, the training, the processing, the developing, the discipling, and everything else is out. You must be born again. Someone says, well, it's a process. Let me tell you something. Even a process has a start, right? And all over the scripture, you have this, as I mentioned earlier, being confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, right? There is a beginning. There is a beginning. Now is the, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6. Ephesians 1, in Christ you first heard, then believed, then were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. There was a beginning, there was a belief. Paul said to the Ephesians when he he came upon them in Acts 19, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He talks about a time. The word believe is the word pistuo. It means to make a commitment to. When you make a commitment to something, you do it at a point in time. And again, verse 7, you must be born again. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We must be saved. You must be saved. I must be saved. And so in this intense dialogue it just it intensifies at this moment. And Jesus begins to explain, and he actually reminds Nicodemus of the things he should already know as a scholar. Nicodemus himself understands the analogy that Jesus is using to be a spiritual birth. Otherwise, why would he say, what am I supposed to do, go back into my mother's womb and be born again? So he gets it. And yet he doesn't get it. And Jesus responds by saying, God rejects the first birth for the second birth. And it's always been the way it is, Nicodemus. Throughout the Old Testament, Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob, every firstborn was rejected. Cain, the firstborn, rejected for Abel. Ishmael, the firstborn, rejected for Isaac. Esau, the firstborn, rejected for Jacob. God always rejects the first birth for the second birth. The illustration, the picture was all there for him. And even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writing in that resurrection account that we sang about in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 46, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. Remember, Nicodemus was an Old Testament scholar, and for this reason, Jesus rebuked him by reminding them he should have known about these things, this radical change in a person's life, the reference to the Holy Spirit's special work, all predicted in the Old Testament, as well as the picture of the new, of the new birth or the second birth. 
In Ezekiel chapter 36, no, every scholar believes that, he's, that Nicodemus's mind would have gone right to Ezekiel 36, where there's this prophecy of the new birth, where God says, I will take your heart of stone out of you. I will put a heart of flesh within you. I will place my spirit in you, and watch this, and cause you to walk in my ways. And this is the, this is the truth behind verse 8. The wind blows where it wills. You hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. There's no exception. Because God had said years ago, when I place my Spirit in someone, I'm going to cause them to walk in my ways. That's what Lordship is all about. Christ comes in and reigns. And when he does, it's like the wind. There's windy day to day. You see the wind out there, right? You see? No, you don't. Nobody sees the wind, but we say we do. No, we just see what it does. It's bending trees and branches and blowing stuff around. If you see the wind, you better get out of the way. It's probably a tornado. But we see what it does. And so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. And at this point, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And that's where the narrative slips off. We're left hanging. What did he do? Did he believe? Would he believe? The real question is, will you? Will you believe? Sometime later, a bloodthirsty gang of Pharisees ripped into the officers they'd sent to arrest Jesus when they came back, and he wasn't there, John 7. They said, why didn't you bring him back? And the officer said, well, because never a man spoke like this man. And I think that when that officer represented the other officer said that, those Pharisees, among them was Nicodemus. I think that stunned Nicodemus. I think that spoke directly to his heart. And I think he probably thought, same experience I had. Nobody ever spoke like this man. And so without even thinking, just sort of blurts it out. He says, well, you know, uh, Nicodemus, John seven fifty. you know, uh, uh, doesn't our law say, yeah, try a guy before you start, you know, hanging him? And then they rip into Nicodemus for seemingly taking the side of Jesus. And then in John chapter 19, when Jesus is hanging dead on the cross, mangled flesh, having given up his spirit for you and for me, the last person to ever touch his dead, unglorified body was no, no less than Nicodemus, who would also have been rendered unclean for the rest of any Passover ceremonies going on that day. Did he come to Christ? I know this. When Jesus publicly demonstrated his love for Nicodemus, Nicodemus publicly demonstrated his love for Jesus. Will you? As my wife and I drove away from that house with that young couple in it just over a month ago, 
we were both traumatized. My wife was saying, honey, he was under conviction. I think he wanted to be saved. I said, I know, but what was I going to do? Tell him to pray the prayer? I would have just confused him. So we just committed it over to the Lord, and we went home. A mile from home, my phone rang. It was a Missouri number. I don't know anybody from Missouri, so I just deleted it. Up comes a text. Pastor Pat, would you please call me back? And within a few moments, that young man was on his knees with his weeping wife next to him, weeping for joy as he placed his faith in Christ as his Savior. No longer left on the cliff. What will you do with Jesus Christ? You must. You must be born again. Will you pray as we ready for communion?